Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Guy Lord. Guy is the owner of ATC Limited, a Surrey-based contract manufacturer of life-critical high-accuracy devices for the medical device and aerospace markets. Guy, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with us. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast, of course, as I say, is to discuss leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the current COVID-19 situation and different business leaders having to really feel their way through this crisis. Tell me, for somebody working in the manufacturing arena such as yourself, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine having to continue to work has posed um, a huge degree of challenges, especially in uh, your line of work. Well, it's been very difficult um, because uh, we're primarily a medical device manufacturer and uh, the vast majority of our market is for elective surgeries, orthopedic implants, hips and knees and spinal implants, instruments for um, cancer operations and so on, all of which um, have been put off as uh, space has been reserved in the NHS for COVID patients. Um, so our market... The rug was pulled from under our feet, and a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we normally send out has been put off. Um, we do see that that will be coming back in the in the summer, but very slowly, and that will probably be the autumn before we're back. But internally, it, it brought a lot of challenges to us at work. Um, we had to we got to protect our staff. It's the first thing um, we had to consider. The first thing we did was a full risk assessment. Business. Um, with vis-a-vis COVID-19, um, what what we could do, what the current practices were, what we needed to change, what the government guidelines were, and how to blend that lot together, and then to go through everything else that we needed to do. We then shared that with all our staff, and we asked for comments, questions, points that other people wanted to make. There were two or three other points that came back in, which we put them in, and we've now created a risk, a full risk assessment um, with a list of rules and so on that people need to follow in the business. So we're now ready for everyone to come back to work as soon as uh, we get work to be able to come back and do. So right now we are, we're, we're running at about 50% um, and we're making uh, ventilator parts and we're making a few other critical parts that are still required in the, in the NHS and other health services around the world. Um, but there is only so long you can go on at 50% running. So we need these things to start looking looking up and for, for turnover to go up um, to allow us to pull everyone back into work. Mm. And has it been encouraging the uh, the news that the government is now encouraging these um, routine surgical procedures to essentially get going again, even though it could well be, as you say, a few months before things do kick off back to full capacity? I think it is encouraging. Yes, that's definitely encouraging. And I think they need to get all the Nightingale hospitals filled with COVID patients. And they've got such a backlog. Uh, there was 4.4 million uh, waiting patients waiting for, for procedures before this started. By September, there will be 7 million people waiting. So we need to organise ourselves now in the NHS, having got off the, over the, or past the peak of the crisis of COVID, we now need to organise ourselves to get past the crisis of this huge build-up of, of waiting times to get people out of there. And that's going to require... 
some some really strong leadership mm. within the NHS, and and that not so much at governmental level, but really within the NHS, where they've got to decide about shift working preparations, how to how to uh, protect people, but work extra hours, have shifts open for three, four, five months, and get this backlog down, because we can't carry on with that. We can't be in a situation uh, in in a year's time where people start dying and they say, well, if only you'd come into the hospital a month earlier. That's unacceptable. Mm. We need to do something about it now. Absolutely. And as you say, that's going to take some serious leadership over the uh, the coming weeks and months. Although we have heard um, as well some uh, greater stories um, of this uh, pandemic so far, um, and it's brought the best out of leaders and employees alike, who whether they've had to continue working on site um, or whether they've had to continue to um, sort of adapt to working remotely, that they've um, really sort of got their heads down and really um, concentrated on the task in hand. And as I say, it's really brought out the best in certain people. With regards to ATC and of course um, the NHS, um, are you sort of uh, along that mindset as well, Guy? Very much so, yeah. We've had some great things. Our people, we've had to furlough a number of people because of the reduction in sales. Um, but equally, a number of people who have been in have been doing above and beyond the call of duty. We've also had lots of support from furloughed people who are emailing us and texting us and so on, asking how things are going, if there's anything else they can do, is there anything they can volunteer for, all sorts of things, which is really heartwarming. Certainly uh, great to uh, to see, isn't it? And in terms of uh, your own sort of uh, leadership style or strategy, if you will, Guy, have you found that you've had to sort of adapt that as well to cope with the uh, the crisis and the changes that have come about as a result of this? Uh, not not particularly to change my style, no. I think the, the issue is these problems have come up. We've got to deal with it. You've got to now stand up and be counted and, and deal with it and show people that you're dealing with it. And a lot of the problems, particularly in the first two or three weeks, was was total fear. Everyone was running around thinking they were about to get a killer disease. Um, as time has gone on, more and more people are coming to the conclusion that that whilst it's still out there and it's still a great problem and we need to address it, the chance of getting this problem is reducing all the time. And people are starting to become more confident um, but there are still a lot of people who are living in fear, and, and we have to help these people. And one of the ways is, is to show them the way forward and that there is less fear to be had and to, and to protect people. We will cover this for you. Don't worry about that. And so on. These are, these are many of the useful things that we can do. And that's where leadership comes into play as well, isn't it? There has been a lot of fear and there has been a lot of pressure on leaders to provide a lot of answers because even in the sense of just, of course, the uh, the furlough system at the moment, there have been a lot of employees perhaps a little bit worried about their incomes and are looking to the leader for um, sort of key um, answers as to uh, what the future does hold. And sometimes in business especially, the leader may not necessarily know too much more than those around them. And this is where communication becomes really important, isn't it, to provide that much needed reassurance. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we're all we're all uh, flying blind insofar as not knowing when this this whole thing will end, and that we will get back to a, to any form of normality and be able to mix with our friends and family and and work normally and so on. It's going to be some while, um, but um, you know we can only do what we can only do. I think so far the government actually have been pretty good. I mean they had two major tasks to deal with. Number one was to stop the, the NHS being overrun, and they've done that. And the second thing was to ensure that the whole country didn't get 
didn't go out of work. And, and the furloughing system has put that a hold. The next stages will be really tricky. And, um, but, you know, the first, the, the first two uh, challenges, they pass with flying colours. So I think we, we've got to have a little bit of hope that they're going to come through beyond this and uh, do, do the investment needed to get everyone back to work. Mm, for sure. And um, there have been some uh, questions um, of the uh, the government's approach uh, to this um, as well as praise. Um, some people, of course, have uh, basically um, given the government some criticism due to a lack of transparency or openness, for example, which I think actually has been well addressed by the daily coronavirus briefings. Um, do you think that there is there has been maybe sort of a lack of clarity in some places or do you think that perhaps it's other sources perhaps muddying the waters a little bit? I think it's other sources. I think it's very difficult. You know, this is this is completely unprecedented. Everyone's flying blind. You know, this is completely unprecedented. And every, you know, you can't go into well. You know, this country's got it right. We didn't know. We just didn't know. We were all we were all suddenly in the same problem at the same time. I think it's very unfair to criticise anyone when you put them in this extreme situation. Um, to say, well, you did this. There were. There will be there will be stuff that comes out in the full inquiry at the end of this that that looks at these things and says we should have done this. We probably should have shut the borders at the beginning of March. That would have cut things back dramatically. But we didn't know. We considered that it was that and and there were people giving advice to the government at that time that they didn't need to do that. And so they didn't. It may well turn out that that was the wrong decision. But they made it whatever they did, they made it in good faith. Exactly. And I think um, in every single situation such as this, hindsight is very much a wonderful thing, isn't it? And um, it's very easy to essentially criticise leadership, especially, especially those in the public eye, such as politicians. And that's also another key aspect of leadership, isn't it? Being able to deal with that criticism and essentially shoulder that um, responsibility, because the buck does ultimately stop with you, even if, of course, it is an unprecedented situation such as this, and very much the knives are out, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And if we think about the future and what that may hold now, Guy, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months holds for yourself and for ATC, perhaps also the NHS as well, and also what you hope to achieve in that time. And not just, of course, for getting through the COVID-19 pandemic, but also when we begin to emerge from the other side of this situation as well. Uh, well, this, uh, from, from our business point of view, we believe that uh, we're bumbling along the bottom right now. That uh, it's not going to get worse than this, but uh, this isn't this isn't good enough. But we're bumbling along the bottom. We're seeing that from July, there's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel that things have started. There's a few people starting to come back to work. There's a few orders starting to be placed, um, and by definition, we'll go July and August is always a reasonably quiet time. It shouldn't be this year, but I, I don't suspect that the NHS will change that much through that period. And I would think that we've start to get properly back to normal in September, October, um, and then we start moving at a, at a normal pace over the next 12 months. Um, there'll be a catch-up after that where there'll be extra operations being pushed through, particularly a lot of our work is export. A lot of this goes into the U.S., um, where... Private hospitals uh, across the U.S. are really hurting from not having elective surgery. It's one of their major income generators. Um, and they will be doing all the sort of things I was suggesting the NHS have did of extra shifts and so on to get people in and get them through and get, get more money into their, their hospitals and also get more people treated. 
Um, so I think I think that will happen. We're also uh, we are trying to make contact with the government to talk about um, some opportunities that could come up from this. Uh, it, it is clear that this country is too dependent on outside of the country suppliers for mm. too many different products, and we need to do something. One of the ways to reduce the unemployment that we're undoubtedly going to get after this problem is to uh, for the government to give some leadership and investment into bringing certain products back into this country. Um, PPE is an obvious is an obvious one. Mm. Um, we're looking at uh, face masks, disposable face mask manufacturing. Um, there are loads of things that there is, but it, but it needs to be brought back into this country. Nowadays, when you look at machine tools and uh, automation and robotics, uh, we just bought we just bought a robot. Um, and it's working very well, um, and a new five-axis machine. But if you look at, at robotics nowadays, you could bring an automated system back into this country. Um, by the time you take the fact that our land cost will be more expensive, um, but you won't have the shipping cost of shipping stuff in from the Far East or wherever. Uh, if, the, if the line is totally automated, the advantage of cheap labor has gone out the window. Um, and I think the government should be looking at investment in in manufacturing systems to bring things back into this country um, because there will be a lot of people that will soak up a lot of labor that will be laid off after this. It's certainly going to be a very interesting times, um, as you uh, say, Guy, when all of this uh, does start to uh, pan out. And I think it would actually be fantastic from the listener's point of view if once we start to see these changes happening, we could have you back on the programme just to look at what we've said today retrospectively and just see how things are getting on in that respect and also catch up on the state of ATC as well. Um, But I have to say, um, as far as today's gone, Guy, it's been a thoroughly insightful um, experience um, having you on the uh, the programme today for sure and also an absolute pleasure and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. It's been thoroughly insightful, as I say. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Guy. And do take care and do stay safe yourself as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Guy Lord, the owner of ATC Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence as one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, despite being blind from birth, having held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair, and also having been the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. And that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. 
in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, declined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June, 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.